MRAP snack. Do pediatric resuscitations make you nervous? Well, they should, because I think it's one of the most stressful things that we do in emergency medicine. Treating a child with cardiopulmonary arrest, the stakes could not possibly be higher. And now to add to it, there is an update to the Pediatric Advanced Life Support Guidelines. It was published in 2020 in Circulation. And actually, in case you missed it, like me, there was also an update in 2019. Luckily, one of our PEM friends is going to bring us up to speed, Dr. Jason Woods. He has an outstanding guest who I will let him introduce. Welcome back, listeners. Today, I am here with Dr. Alexis Topgen, an associate professor of anesthesia and critical care medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Alexis has been gracious enough now for the third time to offer up some time to interview with me. And we've done some prior discussions around post-arrest hypotension and the approach to post-arrest care in pediatrics. And this time, we're going to talk about the 2020 PALS update from the American Heart Association. Alexis was the chair of the guidelines writing committee for the 2020 PALS update. So we're going to do a rundown on some things that I think we all expected to be coming, some things that were surprising, and then where some controversy still exists. So thanks, Alexis, for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be talking with you again, Jason. So the prior update came out in 2015, and I mostly want to go over some things that are new about this one. And I want to highlight right off the top for anybody that hasn't actually looked at the guidelines, they're structured really interestingly. I, I like the way they are broken down. Right at the top of the paper, there is a top 10 changes, things to be aware of. And it's worth anybody that's listening, go take a look because it divides the big pieces of evidence up in a way that I actually found enjoyable to try to understand and dig into. You can read it at whatever level you want. If you need the summary, it's there. And if you need some of the underlying data, that's also there. I kind of split them up personally into things I think will not be surprising versus some things that I think will warrant some more discussion. So some of these are mirror some language that was in there before. One CPR. The first of them is just that high quality cardiopulmonary resuscitation or CPR as the foundation and chest compressions remain a primary source of the benefit that we're providing you reemphasize that the general depth of compression is about 1.5 inches in pediatrics. Is there anything else to add there? No, you know, I think this was number one on the top take-home messages. Although there was nothing new for this guideline, this is the foundation of CPR. We see improvement in outcomes over time, and it's due to the compressions that are provided. So we really felt like this needed to be highlighted as the number one take-home message, even though it was not a change. Two, early use of epi. Number two was for patients with non-shockable rhythms, the earlier the epi is administrated after CPR, the more likely the patient is to survive. That mirrors, I believe, the ACLS guidelines and some adult data that's come out. Believe it or not, this is an update. Our previous guidelines said it was reasonable to use epi, but newer data really supports the earlier administration of epinephrine is associated with improved outcomes, both in the in-hospital setting as well as the out-of-hospital setting. And so that comes through in the guideline as well as in the algorithms. You'll notice there's a change that parallels ACLS as well. Three, cuffed endotubes. This next one is near and dear to my heart. You know, everybody has their own pet peeves and the continued use of uncuffed endotracheal tubes just was was murdering my soul. So uh, <laughs> one of the guidelines is to use cuffed endotracheal tubes and that decreases the need for tube changes and then separately in, in my feelings decreases leak. I know Historically, there was some concerns for previous cuff materials and causing ischemia of that area, but both with the newer cuff materials and the fact that we're monitoring and paying attention to it, hadn't really seen a use for uncuffed tubes in a long time, noting that this does not apply specifically to neonates. 
Right. So this does not apply to neonates, but I will tell you as an intensivist, the uncuffed tubes are also the bane of my existence because kids happened to just be sick enough when they rolled in my door and needed a tube change that it got pretty dodgy. So this was actually supported by a reasonable amount of data. Um, we can't say that all the guidelines are, but in looking at some systematic reviews, it was really clear that cuffed endotracheal tubes were safe with no increased subglottic stenosis as long as cuff pressures were assessed and attention to tube size was paid prior to intubation. And it decreased the risk of leak and maybe decreased the risk of some aspiration. So there was some pretty decent data to support using cuffed endotracheal tubes over uncuffed endotracheal tubes. And that was a significant change and hopefully something that will be translated into practice. Definitely helpful in the emergency setting because that's where many of our intubations are happening. Four, recess doesn't end with ROSC. This next one we did an entire interview on previously, so I'm not going to spend too much time <laughs> on. But I know this is really important is that resuscitation does not end with the return of spontaneous circulation. There's an entire section that is with equal importance to all of the pre-return of spontaneous circulation interventions about that patient whose heart you just got beating. How do you keep them alive and with the best long-term outcomes? And so I think that's incredibly important. And the guidelines do a really good job of highlighting the places where we sometimes fail at that, in particular, things like hypotension. Yeah. So this iteration of the guidelines, post-arrest care is its own section. I think the things to really highlight are that we did not change the guideline regarding hyperoxia or hypoxia or hypotension. That being said, targeted temperature management had been updated in 2019, and so we re-emphasized this preference to use TTM for patients for in and out of hospital cardiac arrest, so a very active process. And then we strengthened our recommendations around continuous EEG monitoring for the 2020 guidelines, really saying that when resources are available, continuous EEG is recommended for the detection of seizures. And that was a little bit of a strengthening from previous, as well as strengthened guidance regarding the treatment of seizures and non-convulsive status. Five, naloxone. All right. And then the last one before we get to the things I really want to dig into is just that while naloxone can reverse respiratory arrest due to opioid overdose, there's no evidence that it's useful routinely in cardiac arrest. This was not a practice I had been following, but it did exist elsewhere. And sometimes because we say that many of the pediatric arrests are originally respiratory related, there was always this question. But if you're handling their airway and providing them with respirations, naloxone doesn't really add much to that. Yeah. And I'll tell you, we didn't review pediatric data specifically here. We extrapolated this from the adults. I think we know the opioid epidemic is expansive in this country. And we know that children are vulnerable as well. And what they really highlighted is that naloxone can reverse respiratory arrest. You can use it in cardiac arrest, but don't delay rescue breathing and CPR to provide naloxone when a patient is in, in arrest because naloxone itself is probably not going to turn things around. So High quality CPR, once again, really is highlighted administration of ventilations with your CPR when a patient's in cardiac arrest from suspected opioid overdose. Six, out of hospital arrests and bag valve mask ventilation. All right. Now the ones that I think will generate a little bit more excitement. This one I was pretty stoked about. For out of hospital cardiac arrest, bag mask ventilation provides the same resuscitation outcomes as advanced airway interventions, such as endotracheal intubation. So are you suggesting that for patients who have already arrested, there may not be a benefit to spending time placing an ET tube instead of just providing them with breasts with a bag? Yes, this is specifically for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This has not been evaluated in hospital cardiac arrest. And this was actually reviewed in 2019 and then carried over to the 2020. And there's some pretty reasonable data that bag mass ventilation compared to advanced airway interventions such as SGA, so subglottic airways, and endotracheal tube intubation for pediatric cardiac arrest is reasonable. So, you know, we know delivery of high-quality compressions is really important, and we know that taking time to intubate can lead to cessation of compressions. And so 
The literature really supported this. And so we once again have this recommendation saying bag mass ventilation is reasonable. You don't have to intubate. Just do CPR, bag mass ventilate that patient and get them to higher level of care. Seven, respiratory rate. You recommended increasing the respiratory rate from 10 to 12 to 20 to 30. And the second half of that statement, for some reason, people seem to forget because it says with CPR, with an advanced airway or rescue breathing with a pulse. So that is not a change for sort of typical one or two rescuer compression breathing ratios when there's not a pulse. It is for other situations, but that's a big increase. So we knew that this was going to be a hot topic. We specifically looked at CPR with an advanced airway in place. And as people will recall, prior we had recommended in parallel to the adults a respiratory rate of 10 breaths per minute with CPR with an advanced airway in place. So that meant that you were doing compressions at 100 to 120 beats per minute, and then you were asynchronously providing a respiratory rate of about 10 breaths per minute. That had been extrapolated from adult data, and that was for really the ease of training. There was no available human pediatric data to corroborate that. On this iteration of the guidelines, when we looked at human pediatric data, there was one study which had been performed in the in-hospital setting, so definitely different than the out-of-hospital setting. And in that study, they had looked at specifically ventilation rates. What they found was that no child in that study received a ventilation rate near the 10 breaths per minute. And when they looked at cut points of age and outcomes, 20 to 30 breaths per minute was what highlighted for infants and children. Now, 20 breaths per minute was for children and 30 breaths per minute was for infants. And what was notable and and which is part of the guideline that I think gets a little bit forgotten when this translates is that people need to make sure that you don't hyperventilate beyond that because it can impact hemodynamics. So you need to be very cognizant. This was something that the group really digested. It's a pretty big change, and there's not tons of data. However, what we were working with before was no data. And so we were extrapolating from adults, physiologically quite different. And so the group, after much discussion, felt like updating this with pediatric data made sense. You need to account for the clinical condition and the age of the patient. So there is some thought that has to go into this. It's a big change. And I think not everybody loves it. It is, I think, a step in the right direction for our patients. The second piece of that you just touched on was rescue breathing with a pulse. And so that is the other component of 20 to 30 breaths per minute that we added in. What people may recall is prior for rescue breathing with a pulse, we had recommended 12 to 20 breaths per minute. I think it's really hard when you're a provider to have all these different ranges of breaths. So we sat down and we said, well, if we had done ease of teaching before to align adults and pediatrics, let's do ease of teaching to align pediatrics and pediatrics. And so there was no data whatsoever for that 12 to 20 breaths per minute for respiratory arrest. So for ease of teaching, we changed it to 20 to 30 to align with CPR. We thought it'd be easier for people to remember. And knowing that many children have a respiratory arrest, require higher rates for minute ventilation, it made sense to deliver a rate that was more consistent with the child's physiology. Eight, fluid resus and sepsis. Fluid resuscitation and sepsis was discussed. And if I am reading this correctly, there is less firmness or a less strong recommendation on the urgency to fluids and sepsis resuscitation. And am I reading that correctly? Am I wrong? And why was there no strong stance on balanced fluid potentially being quote, better than your other isotonic options? So I think a couple of things with this. The first is that when you look at some of the data that's been published, as well as what has come out of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and their review of the pediatric sepsis guidelines, 
we know that too much fluid can be harmful. And so we're not saying don't give fluid or give it slowly. What we're saying is stop and assess and reassess as you give fluid because the previous of 20 per kilo times three to hit 60 per kilo in 30 minutes, you may actually end up fluid overloading a patient and get yourself into trouble. So this is really saying stop, pay attention, assess and reassess, look for signs of pulmonary edema and fluid overload as you go along. It is not saying walk away, give 10 per kilo every hour. It just says be really highly vigilant. And I think that's what we were really getting at. The potential harm of over-resuscitating with fluid has been discussed extensively elsewhere. You know, a lot of it stems from this Mm -hmm. trial that is called FEAST that is not necessarily in our patient population, but it did provide some surprising results. And I don't think it can be ignored, even if it's not strictly applicable to our exact patient population. And then I think you probably see this more than, than I do in the ER, where you then have to deal with the downstream consequences of a kid who's blown up like a balloon. No, I think that's right. And I think, you know, what we what we want, we've all given that maybe extra 20 per kilo and said like, ugh, would have rather started a presser. So what we're saying is don't walk away, but just reassess prior to giving that next load of fluid. We have a lot more tools at our fingertips than we once had. And while we don't dive into modes of assessment here specifically, like POCUS or mixed venous saturations, we know as providers that we have ways to assess the fluid status of our patients. You just mentioned pressors, and this is, I think, one of the key take-home points that has come with the instruction to be careful with your fluid resuscitation is that I do think sometimes inappropriate fluid boluses were being used and delaying the vasoactive medication, which was actually what was needed. And I wonder if that was in your thought process. Yeah. So I think we all have to assess when do you stop giving fluids or slow down giving fluids and start a vasoactive infusion. Our big change related to this previously in 2010, our recommendation had been to use dopamine as a first line agent. And there's some reasonable data supporting that that is probably not the best choice anymore. So our big change was highlighting that epinephrine or norepinephrine infusions should be used for fluid refractory septic shock dopamine in the event that you don't have access to either one of those. The big thing there is when is a patient fluid refractory and when do you make that decision? And I think once again, every patient's different. So assessment of a patient's fluid status is really important. You may not need to give 60 per kilo prior to initiating vasoactive infusions. And in fact, sometimes, you know, cardiogenic shock, although septic shock may be slightly different, we definitely see patients with sepsis that may show up with more myocardial dysfunction. So frequent assessment and reassessment have pressors ready, identify fluid refractory shock. It doesn't mean you've given 60 per kilo. It means the patient is refractory to those fluids. What about the choice of fluids? You know, there's not a strong recommendation in here for one way or the other. So the data, I think when you start with crystalloid, well, let's say crystalloid versus colloid. Data is really unclear as to which may be better. um, And I think we're, we're clear about that. There is some ongoing work right now, actually, by one of my colleagues looking at different crystalloid infusions for the resuscitation from sepsis. And so I think it is unclear what the best crystalloid is, but there is ongoing work trying to delineate that. And so I think it remains unclear. Grab fluids, you know, that you're comfortable with. I think take into account the features of that fluid, whether it is albumin, whether it's pH neutral or somewhat acidotic, and and think about that as you resuscitate. But there is no fluid that stands out right now as the best fluid to be selecting. There has been some criticism from other experts on these guidelines, in particular from Dr. Peter Antevi, who published an editorial picking out two specific things that were listed in the guidelines. One of them is the dose of epinephrine in bradycardia, and the other one is about this increase in the respiratory rate from 10 to 12 up to 20 to 30. Now, to be clear, once again, I think we have to be really clear about this. 
That's in patients with an advanced airway in place or patients who have a pulse but are receiving rescue breaths. So Jason asked Dr. Topgen about this, and here's what she said. You know, first, I just want to note that we're really appreciative when members of the medical community read the guidelines and sort of thoughtfully question and evaluate the recommendations that we've come up with. And, and so I think it is important for editorials to be written. I do think there are a couple things to sort of highlight with respect to the questions regarding ventilation rate, as well as epinephrine for bradycardia. I think Dr. Entevi highlighted that overzealous ventilation should be avoided, and we're in agreement with that. I think the question is, where is overzealous ventilation? We just don't know. We really have a dearth of pediatric data, and we were fortunate for this iteration of the guidelines to have a paper to support recommendations, which we had not in the past. There's clearly more work to be done in this area. For bradycardia and the administration of epinephrine, it is true we had the addition of one new study, and this was critically evaluated by the writing group, and we found that it didn't demonstrate causality but instead some confounded associations. And there was concern that this was not enough to, to change our current guidelines for epinephrine dosing for refractory pediatric bradycardia requiring CPR. You know, I think we, as we went through this process, were surprised. We have to be ready to accept some of the changes that come down the pike. Um, there were definitely some that we didn't anticipate or definitely there. And I think engaging care providers to implement these guidelines and help figure out how to push the needle and, and improve outcome, especially for our out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients, where survival outcomes are improving slowly is really important. So, Alexis, we've gone through the top 10 take-home points that were listed at the front of the paper, as well as a couple of other controversies. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that the listeners know is in these guidelines, even if we don't have time to deep dive into it? So, you know, all of these guidelines align or come out to in algorithms, and I think it's just important to touch on the algorithms that were updated. There are a couple key things. The first is for pediatric cardiac arrest algorithm, the major change is you'll see the addition of a little epinephrine syringe between box 9 and 10 and after asystole and PEA. And that aligns with the adults. It parallels with the shock on VFVT, but epinephrine ASAP, we really wanted a visual to note that. The second thing is we added a post-cardiac arrest checklist this go-around. That was something to get a tangible, usable checklist in the hands of providers. You can print out this document. You can take it. You can make it into a pathway. You can put it on a clipboard. But we didn't want things just to be science. We wanted to have a tool for some implementation. And then the final thing is for our tachyarrhythmia and bradycardia algorithms, the science didn't change, but we felt like we needed to reorder things a little bit. Previously, it asked you to identify a rhythm first. It had the clinician evaluate whether there was poor perfusion or not poor perfusion. And we know that can be pretty difficult for people to identify, especially in some emergency situations. So what we did for those algorithms is we really asked the provider to first and foremost determine, is there cardiovascular compromise upfront? Because that's really going to dictate the urgency of your response. So is there a change in mental status? Is there hypotension? We want you to figure out if the patient is compromised. Once you figure out if they're compromised, then you can dive into what the rhythm is. Because if they're not compromised, you probably have a little bit more time at a heart rate of um, 60 than if they are. And so I think it's just a little bit of a shift, but it's really worth um, looking at those algorithms to identify that and how that might impact your practice. Well, I appreciate your time today. This has been amazing as every interview with you is. So thanks for coming on and hopefully we'll have you back. Yeah, thanks for asking me. And I'm, I'm really happy to represent an incredible group of volunteers here who worked really hard to get these guidelines out. Now, we've linked to the guidelines in the show notes. You can see it right there. And on the front page, they actually just list the top 10 take-home messages. So it's nice and clear and listed for you right there. It's also in our summary of this section. 
I'm going to go over some of the high points again now for space repetition. Space repetition. The foundation of any resuscitation, whether it's pediatric or adult, is high quality chest compressions. Okay, so this means adequate depth, adequate rate, allowing for full recoil and minimal interruptions. When it comes to airway, these guidelines say that for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, bag mask ventilation results in the same outcomes as an advanced airway. If you're going to intubate, they recommend doing this with a cuffed endotracheal tube, okay? Except for neonates, we're now going to use cuffed endotracheal tubes. These have been shown to be safe, and the need for tube exchanges decreased without an increase in subglottic stenosis as long as the proper tube size is used and cuff pressures are assessed. And finally, and this is a big one and sort of a controversial one, if there is an advanced airway in place or if you are doing rescue breaths on a child with a pulse, the new recommended respiratory rate is 20 to 30. That's a big jump from where it was before, 10 to 12, now up to 20 to 30. Again, just to be clear, this is only in children who have an established airway or they have a pulse but are receiving rescue breaths. Otherwise, that ratio of compressions to breaths is still the same, 30 to 2 for a single rescuer and 15 to 2 for a team of two rescuers. This point has been a little bit controversial, but this is what the guidelines currently state. Finally, when it comes to fluids, they don't take a stance on the type of fluid, whether it's crystalloid or balanced crystalloid or colloid. No, they don't say because there's not a lot of evidence over one versus another, but what they do say is basically don't drown your patient. When it comes to fluids, give the initial fluid bolus, but then stop and reassess the patient. How are they responding? Do they need more fluids? Okay, go ahead and give another bolus, then stop and reassess the patient. And then what? Once the patient has been adequately fluid resuscitated, we're going to move on to vasopressors. And the guidelines recommend that your vasopressor of choice is, do you know what it is? Do you remember? Epinephrine or norepinephrine. Okay, those are your first-line options in pediatric advanced life support, epinephrine or norepinephrine. Now, there's a lot more good stuff in these guidelines, so I recommend that you check them out and listen to this again a few more times. And listen to this again a few more times. A few more times. Space repetition.